Hi, this is uh, Kevin Eastman, co-creator of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, I'm thrilled that you're going to be joining us today. Uh, we're going to be talking about heroes and legends and uh, inspirations and artists and martial artists uh, and everything that influenced uh, everything that I have become uh, right here um, on the Fly of the Day podcast. Um, we're going to have a great time, so Kawabanga, join us. I was wondering if we could start by talking about the importance of superheroes in a broken society, particularly now. Comic books at their most powerful have helped to progress society forward throughout important movements and historical events. We can go through decades of American history and discuss the many times superheroes have shined through challenges and darkness, such as what we're going through right now. Did you ever imagine Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles contributing to collaborative spirit and self-control globally as much as it has generationally? Well, that's what's so fantastic about the evolution, the creation and the evolution of, of superheroes. And it's really based on, you know, so many things that we we all grew up on. I mean, and in, in, in the sense of gods and myths and <clears throat> Greek legends and, you know, uh, heroic tales of, you know, kids you read, uh, things you read as you were a kid, you know, Tom Kidd or Treasure Island, you know, Tom Kidd, Treasure Island, Robinson Crusoe, Robin Hood. Um, there's always that iconic sort of superhero that sort of embodies what I think deep down, what we'd all love to be um, in, in a worst case scenario that would be the person to uh, do the right thing, to make the right gesture, to, to, to save the damsel in distress or, or do go that extra 10 yards to, to help a, uh, a person in need. And I think that, you know, for the American superhero has evolved in the um as you clearly sort of laid out there um in in a sense as the um 1940s um you know late 30s and 40s and, and the, the war periods um times through you know different kind of <clears throat> fantasy elements and the, what they call the the silver age and the um which was sort of where you know i was really introduced to comic books at that time to um you know the golden age and to right up to where we are now that was the heroic element, that escapism that um, I loved, even when I grew up as a child in a very, very, very small town out in the country up in Maine, um, one of the first movies I ever saw on TV, I mean, I'm sorry, at a movie theater was um, Planet of the Apes. Mm. One of my favorite, one of my favorite comic books was um, Jack Kirby did a comic book for DC called Commandy, The Last Boy on Earth, which was you know, kind of a, a furtherance of that concept of animals ruling the world and humans had been reduced to slaves and, and growing up <laughs> in a very small town with lots of challenges, uh, life's challenges, you know, my parents were separated when I was young and that kind of stuff. But we, uh, you had a, you know, a tough go of it that, you know, looking up to a, a superhero or a character that you really said, I want to be strong in the case of when all the odds against are against you, you want to be strong like this character. And it sort of that escapism sort of helps you through some of those dark and, and tougher times, for me personally, and this bringing it all forward to the turtles, when the turtles started reaching, you know, um, 25 years old, 30 years old, I started getting more cons and, and from fans that grew up with the original turtles 
um, um, that just would blow my mind in the sense that they said, you know, when I was younger, I had a really tough time and dysfunctional family and, you know, this, this, and the other thing. And he said, the turtles really helped me through a tough time because I felt like these quote unquote teenagers, <laughs> as odd as they were, they really were in the sense had all the odds against them. Uh, and they just wanted to be teenagers at the end of the day. And if I figured if they could make it, then I could make it. And they really helped me through some, some tough moments. And it was the first couple of times somebody said that to me, a fan said that to me, um, uh, I, I couldn't quite grasp it because I couldn't imagine characters that I co-created with Peter Laird, characters that we created help somebody like, say, Jack Kirby's Commandy helped me or superheroes have helped, as you said, you know, uh, lots of people in lots of ways along the way. So it was really sort of a mind-blowing kind of experience where you go like, wow, I can't see how they did it. But then when you sort of realize it and you really think it through, it is, it is fantastic um, that... Something so positive came out of an idea that was so silly, if you will, but it was <laughs> heartfelt. It was very, you know, we approached it very seriously. We told the story that we wanted to tell. We wanted the emotion. We wanted the drama. We wanted the hero- heroism and all that stuff. But it just was hard to put your characters and yourself in that mindset of you helping somebody through a comic book or through a, a character and stuff. So um, I do think that um, even now as the Turtles and so many uh, heroic characters, whether it be comics or, or, or screen or, or small screen and everything uh, above that, that helps people get through some tough moments and gives them something to sort of lean on a little bit when you need something to lean on or a crutch and so on and so forth. It's, um, it's a positive thing and it is, you know, um, quite a, quite humbling to be honest, um, to, to have created something that's been around now 36 years and has had an effect on people the way that it has. Um, mm. So that's really, changed my life in, in ways I could never have imagined. Um, How do you think TMNT reflects the time in which it was created, as well as suggests a progressive future for new generations? Well, that's a, a great question as well. And, and when you think, like, um, from my perspective, the way I look at it, it was it was quite an astonishing thing that, you know, um, that the first comic book sold. um in that you know we peter and i hoped in our wildest dreams that we might sell you know two or three hundred copies and maybe we'd make enough money to pay the small loan that we 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 took from my uncle to help us print those books Um, but we just wanted to be comic book storytellers um, like our our hero jack kirby Um, and so the fact that it actually sold and allowed us to not only do a second issue but a third issue and and become Jack Kirby in our mind that we were making a living paying uh, drawing comic books, telling stories. But then it went so much further than that. Um, and so um, you're going into late eighties, early nineties. It's this big, huge global success. And, you know, we're again, um, um, taken aback and, and, and so mystified and, and, and blessed and honored that it's doing all these things and has gone to all these places to go to see the turtles, um, in the premiere of one of the first films in Paris was that's the first time I'd ever been to Paris. It was just like, you, you just can't, <laughs> you can't dream this stuff and this stuff was happening. Mm. Um, and so it had its peak and it sort of slid into that Valley as any property does. If you look at, you know, things like, you know, say Batman or Superman that had height, you know, they had peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys, but you know, we, we 
felt that if we were lucky enough to, it lasted with us and that was great. And so then you sort of fast forward to, you know, say the 2000s where they did a relaunch of the Turtles and it was popular, but never as popular like the, the original um, launch and the original arrival of the Turtles. And now, so that sort of filtered, you know, petered away, filtered away. Then when Nickelodeon, uh, when Viacom bought it, Nickelodeon launched a new cartoon series and the new comic books and the new toys. Um, suddenly it became generational in that I always said, um, and love and love to say, you know, you cannot tell a child what is cool and what's not. You couldn't tell me when I was a kid what I liked and when I didn't. You know, um, the first of you kids um, now grown ups that fell in love with the turtles, you know, you can't sort of put this in front of your child and then suddenly expect them to like like it as much as you do. It's something they decide. And so the fact that this next coming, say, it started around 2012 when they did the relaunch, that it became as popular and as successful. Uh, marginally successful comparatively as it was when it first arrived with a whole new audience. So we've recaptured the original audience, plus it's introduced to it's a, uh, a whole new audience of, of youngsters, um, which is just, you know, I hate to keep using the word mind-blowing, but it is. It's one of those things you just really scratch your head and go, this is amazing. I don't understand, you know, how we could be so lucky, not only that it worked the first time, but it's worked the second time. And then um, not only domestically you know uh, here in the states but it's 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 got gotten quite an incredible following around the world again so um and it's crazy you know it's really you don't know how to process that you know it's not it's not in our dna to go to have that success and have lightning strike twice if you will um for this length of time and then you know i always point it back to the fans and that when people say well what do you see in the future of the turtles um and to me it's really um, you know, if we're doing our job correctly, we're telling good stories with the best of intent, and then the fans decide they want to hang in with us, or some new fans discover. So that's going to be um, uh, th- that'll decide its fate, whether it's uh, it goes to sleep again for a while, or if it uh, it still stays out there, or something that's um, you know something people want to um, engage with. Right. Right. You mentioned new fans. Has it ever been challenging for you to accept the thread between tonality and humour and come to terms with the evolution of Turtles having less to do with its past and more to do with its messages for some of the younger audiences today? Do you ever miss your relationship with the Turtles and ultra-violence? No, because, you know, um, when I look at it as when we first did that, you know, I think the, no, I don't think, I, I know that the first 15 issues that Peter and I did together, um, that was really the foundation and the core of all things Turtles. That was where the Turtles universe was set up. And um, although it was um, edgy and, and intense um, and uh, violent in, in, in many cases, it was, the way that we approached it as uh, writers and artists at that time, we both write and we both draw. We wrote a book that we wanted to read, um, the kind of story that we wanted to read. But at the same time, it wasn't like we wanted this. Um, <laughs> you know, I remember watching, say, um, Lone Wolf and Cub, these original Japanese series, when they would show someone get their head cut off and the character would sort of stand there and shoot blood across the field of battle for 10 minutes yeah. before he finally fell over. And, you know, we, we always sort of 
did our um, the intense the more intense parts of our stories were sort of off panel so you could sort of go back to that more heroic sense of you know you don't need to show someone's head being cut off but you can sort of allude to the fact that this is a real situation that's very serious and people are getting hurt um so that was definitely very very you know grown-up violence um written for an older audience and so when we adapted it into you know the original cartoon series we knew for the first time we weren't writing for you know 20 somethings we were writing for you know four or five six year old um kids and so a lot of things were softened and changed and things um and that was the way it was in the earliest days that we had these two turtle universes and it was great to be able to have a foot in each universe um as time marched on and i think um the average um reader uh fan that might have a higher tolerance for more edgy material edgier video games more violent video games or things it's sort of lowered and lowered and lowered what what society accepted as you know acceptable violence if you will um <clears throat> became uh lower and so that i think even when you get to the 2000 turtle series which pete really oversaw that um which i really like that series it was darker it was edgy or more intense closer to the original black and white comic book um but still not too violent for the younger audience but it was really written for for some of the older audience and then what i loved about the 2012 launch of the um nickelodeon cartoon series is not only was it was spearheaded by a, an executive director, um, a guy named Cyril Neely was the main creative director of that series. He was a fan of the original Mirage Studios black and white comic books. He grew up in Philadelphia. His dad and his family owned a pizza place, so we grew up eating pizza and drawing turtles. And so he was <laughs> he was tailor made to run the new Nickelodeon series um, uh, when he came on board. And so I love that he put what he liked about both universes, the cartoon series, but the Mirage series. And then, you know, as things evolved, um, I felt the 2012 series was, is one of my favorite next to the original because it's, it's really written for that original audience, um, the edgier fan base, but it still has um, very clever um, um, humor, um, mm. you know, uh, martial arts antics and, and pizza gags and, and silly characters and, and things. I mean, I, I did the voice of a character in the new series called Ice Cream Kitty. It was a cat that was mutated by mutagen and ice cream and became a cat made out of ice cream that Michelangelo had as a pet. It was just, you know, you had that zany silliness. So I just thought that um, the most successful versions of the turtles, in my opinion, are the ones that have kept that balance of, I like what we liked about an old Bugs Bunny cartoon or old Popeye cartoon or old Woody Woodpecker is that they would have the antics and the jokes and the things in there that were for grownups that the kids didn't get, but they had the antics and the jokes and the things that the kids enjoyed. So it was really something written for a very broader uh, age range of, of, of fan as opposed to pigeonholing it into just for kids, you know, like, um, you know, Care Bears or something. <laughs> yeah. so, so it's sort of hitting that middle. And I mean, you know, case in point is, um, you know, this year being the 30th anniversary of um, that first Turtle movie that Steve Barron directed and Jim Henson built those wonderful costumes for us. Steve really um, was so wonderful in that he crafted a story based on both of those original universes of the um, Mirage black and white comic books and the heart and soul and the drama and the, and the, and the intensity and the, and the family 
warmth that you had to have to sort of hold that family together through those tough times. And the uh, cartoon series, the original Fred Wolf, which was um, very lighthearted and silly with the pizza and a lot of the jokes and stuff, which was really good. So that was a really, will always be my favorite turtle movie. But that was one that firmly had its uh, a foot in each turtle universe, um, the kids universe and the original uh, older audience universe. Bringing it back to the balance that we were talking about a minute ago, what about some of the networks in different countries that would censor the cartoon? Can you remember the initial response to the international censorship of the cartoon series? Oh, very well. It was um, it's a, it was an interesting thing because it is, you know, <clears throat> it was a whole new world to uh, Peter and myself, and that again putting perspective into firmly into view where. We, we never imagined it would work <laughs> as an idea here in the States. And then we start going to other countries around the world and it, and it, and it, and it you know, his rules and laws there, for example, uh, in the UK, it, most specifically, it was changed to um, teenage mutant um, hero turtles yeah. um, because, because the word ninja had been outlawed as well as the use of, um, I mean, any, any film uh, or cartoon or anything showing the use of say shurikens or uh, nunchucks, uh, things like that had to be edited out of those cartoons. And that's just the way that the laws were there. There were other adjustments in other countries. Um, that was sort of one of the more specific ones. We did specifically change the title. But, you know, um, in other countries, the name was changed. It was Tortuga uh, Ninja in uh, in France. And, uh, um, in, you know, actually one of my favorites, I just had a flash of this conversation I had with somebody at one point that they said, wow, it must be amazing because um, that this property, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, is probably really huge, hugely popular in, in Japan and other Asian territories um, um, than it is here because that's kind of their thing. And I said, well, you know what's crazy is as a kid's property in, in you know Japan and Asian territories, it was really not that popular at all. Um, well, it was popular for a really short period of time because – the way that they would interpret it as a ninja was just about the most foul, evil villain you could ever imagine. So putting teenage mutant ninja turtles as together as a, as a sentence um, was like saying teenage mutant murdering turtles. <laughs> it wasn't, they just would scratch their head and go, this isn't heroic. I don't, who would want to watch that? Um, so it was just, it was just kind of funny that, uh, yeah, exactly. The things that um, they had to edit out and the things they had to change. I remember uh, funny going to the premiere in London um, with Steve Barron and, and uh, everybody to, to do that. And they had edited out the scene where Michelangelo is ordering the pizza um, on the phone and he's sort of swinging his nunchucks. But it's an important scene because they had to set up the next scene. And so they literally just sort of put this cascading sort of dark shadow across um, uh, the, the, you know, a quarter of the screen. So you couldn't see what he was doing, but you could still see his arm moving, which made it even look more obscene because you didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> um, <laughs> he's swinging his nunchuck. Um, but then it was funny too, because I, we did the Jonathan Ross show as one of the, um, you know, one of the press junket things and they showed yeah. the exact scene uns- uncensored, which was kind of funny. And, uh, I love Jonathan Ross. He's a great character. Um, so yeah, so it is. It is interesting, um, and time, you know, my how times have changed as well. Within its core, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 
it's a family story first and foremost. How often did comics and their stories hold you when nobody else could or would? Living in Ming with divorced parents. Can you talk about the education and values that resonated with you reading these comic books during this timeline? Well, it was um, it was very important, and it was you know it was a form of escapism, and and you know it's um, uh, the the comics that you know. I read a lot of different comics when I was younger, a lot of you know action adventure. My favorite superhero comics were the ones that were more grounded um, in the sense that, for example, I like Batman more than I like Superman. Batman to me seemed a bit more believable, as you could sort of see how someone could train themselves to be a bit of Sherlock Holmes and uh, uh, James Bond with the gadgets and the things like that and, and sort of, you know, solve crimes in, in this way. And then you'd have the, um, you know, Daredevil or Captain America, which uh, uh, the things that they represented to me. <clears throat> but then, you know, I had an aunt that was um, very religious and she was concerned about the fact that I liked comic books as much as I did. So she would go out and buy more wholesome comic books, um, Archie comics, for example, or Casper, you know, Casper, the ghost or sad sack or more humor based comic books or more lighthearted, less intense, um, which I, I loved as well. Um, you know, uh, but she, you know, classics illustrated where they do illustrated comics of classic stories. Um, but it was, um, that kind of, uh, um, escapism, was very important. The humor was, was, um, was very important. And it's funny, I'm reminded of, you know, one of my favorite TV shows, um, growing up in a, a very small town in Maine was, um, Monty Python's flying circus. It mm. was one of those shows. It showed, it showed at 10 o'clock at night on PBS. And, um, you know, we had a traditional American, you know, we had Gilligan's Island and the Brady Bunch and all that stuff, but there was something about Monty Python because it was a little bit dangerous in its humor. They showed it at 10 o'clock at night and on a Sunday night <laughs> and I would just pitch a fit to my mom to let me stay up so I could watch this. And I remember she sat up to, to sort of figure out why I liked this show so much and she watched like 10 minutes and where they had like Hell's Grannies or some other, you know, Terry Gilliam animation. She just like, oh my goodness, um, you're out of your mind. <laughs> <laughs> just left the room and let me watch it. But that was that was really important to, um, as a creative balance to have that kind of humor or um, um, eccentric humor or right. um, things that you, say, discovered and claimed as your own. Like when you find that, you know, the first time you discover a rock band and you're the first one in your neighborhood that's discovered it and you like them and then, you know, sort of that's those are your your finds and your moments and your heroes that you know have an influence on on you for um forever so it's um you got to have that balance that does help you keep a, a fuller perspective through um, um some pretty challenging stuff would you go as far to say and credit monty python for almost informing the humor that turtles had i would say in in, in many ways um, yes, and I would say that because it was um, it was it was so creative and so pushing the boundaries to to places that you would never imagine. In that, you know, you had sort of I always felt like when you became exposed to something like that, you would say, look at say the humor you might find in Gilligan's Island as safe homogenized American sort of family humor. 
And when you look at, you compare something like that to, say, um, Monty Python, where it sort of, you know, it took me a while to get some of the references. Um, I had to, you know, obviously, I, I got more of them as I got older. But, you know, to to have them push it, um, not only um, with the the intensity, the, 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 the sort of the far out eccentric, over the top um, humor that sort of opened up your mind to the kind of boundaries of what you can do um, with humor or with a story. And I specifically bring it back into comic books here in the United States um, for many, many years through the sixties and, and through uh, uh, most of the seventies uh, um, that we had a, a rating system, an approval system called the comics code uh, authority, which was this regulatory system, kind of like movie rating system that, specifically felt that comic books had to be kept um, for the average reader being 12 years old and younger. So they had to be, you couldn't, so they had a whole list of things you couldn't do and, you know, no excessive violence, no excessive this, no, you know, no exposed cleavage. And, and so it sort of kept the comic book marketplace to a much younger audience until in the mid seventies, around 77, when heavy metal magazine came here to the U S um, suddenly you had European comic book artists plus some underground comic book artists, guys like Richard Corbin and Von Bode, you know, compiled next to, um, you know, Mobius or Belial or uh, mm. um, so many, you know, fantastic European storytellers and artists that that was the same relative thing as that. It told me about the time that I was growing out of comic books because they were still very juvenile here. And then you discovered um, heavy metal, and it told you that now you can you can tell stories for all ages, past, present, future. But you know, comic books aren't just for kids; they're for adults. And that was sort of mind expanding and, and opening the doors to I can tell any kind of story I want for any age group in any audience I want through comic books, a medium that I've loved my whole life. So um, yeah, those those kinds of like you know, it's like. You know, I didn't. I couldn't afford to go to college, but that was my college. Yeah, <laughs> my college yeah. of, of life, life, and these discoveries that sort of, you know, not just this way and that. You know, um, you know, I still remember, you know, when my dad introduced me to um, J.J.R. Tol- you know, Tolkien. It's like he said, "I know you really love comic books, but I want you to read real books once in a while too." And he gave me The Hobbit, and that was, you know, you know, led into a whole other level of, you know, um, exposure to. Uh, um, um, ideas and concepts that were just um, mm. life-changing. We're talking about a time in which saw some of the most rule-breaking artists exist, including people like Robert Crumb, etc. What were some of the most important comics in your reading that helped define your imagination and confidence artistically? Um, besides um, the original... Spark, the original inspiration for me was um, was Jack Kirby, as I, we, we've talked about before. Um, he was really the embodiment of um, inspiration in that, um, to me, he not only, he didn't just do one comic. He didn't do one idea. Um, he was, you know, creator slash co-creator of pretty much, you know, most of the Marvel universe in to an effect where he had a hand in so many of those, um, original ideas and things with, with Stan Lee. And then he went from Marvel where he'd been part of creating, you know, 
you know, uh, co-creating Thor and Hulk and Iron Man, the Avengers and the X-Men and Spider, you know, you on and on and on and so many different things that he had a hand in. Then he went to DC Comics for a while, created a whole new line of different <clears throat> characters and concepts. And to me, that was one of the, the guys that I said, I always wanted to model myself after Kirby because he did everything, past, present, future, it was great, um, and he it, there was no limits to what he was restricted to. Um, and then another, that sort of led to the discovery, when I discovered Heavy Metal Magazine, that led to another huge influence to me, which was uh, an artist named Richard Corbin. Richard Corbin was an original underground publisher. He then worked for Warren Magazine, and he did these fantastical um, horror um, or, or adventure, just offbeat sort of, weird comic books, but he wasn't known for one specific character um, until he created a character called Den, which was um, became one of his characters he was most known for because it became part of a heavy metal <clears throat> the heavy metal movie and that kind of stuff. But Corbin was a, a very versatile storyteller in that he did lots of different ideas. Um, and that goes with probably number three, which would be Robert Crumb, mm-hmm. um, because Crumb was just the same as both of those guys, Jack Kirby and, and uh, Richard Corbin, and that he was known for, specific, you know, whether it be Fritz the Cat or Keep on Trucking or certain things that he did, but he just did scores and scores and scores of different and crazy ideas with different kinds of characters, and I like that that unlimited imagination that all three of those embodied. So, I mean, if I hate, you know, if you had to pick three major influences, it would be Jack Kirby, um, Richard Corbin, and Robert Crumb, you know, Flipping back to the um, um, you know standard comic books, which I still loved at all costs. Um, your regular average comic book reader uh, is, was, and still am. Um, Frank Miller. You know, I was a huge mm-hmm. Daredevil fan before. Um, I still remember Daredevil 158 when they introduced a new penciler um, named Frank Miller. And I remember, like, because uh, I was a fan of Gene Colan's work and Bob Brown's and, Bill, you know, Bill Everett, so many people that had worked on Daredevil before. And along comes Frank Miller, and, and it's like, wow, this guy's pretty good. And then for the next 30 issues, he revolutionized a character that was probably one of the least popular on the Marvel roster and put it to, you know, the top of the, you know, one of the best-selling comics that Marvel had had at that time in a long time. Um, and Frank's clever storytelling, pacing, um, crafting of a crime story um, hidden in, in underneath a, a superhero comic book um, was just fantastic. Um, so, yeah, those are, those are my, my four go-to guys. So how do you strike a balance between being inspired by Frank Miller's vision of the ninja in Daredevil, as well as blurred the lines between the philosophies of the Shogun and their representation. Well, it's um, it's an interesting concept, and it's an, it's a it's a a difficult and it's a challenging road to navigate. In hmm. in in what I mean by that, in by definition, is some of the first um, martial arts movies I was exposed to um, growing up in a, in a small town in, in New England, up in Maine. Um, when we first got cable TV, um, there, was a, there was a cable TV station out of Boston that would do, on um, one Saturday, they would do a monster movie marathon. So it'd be, you know, Godzilla and uh, 
um, you know, <laughs> Mothra and it'd be those great, you know, Japanese uh, badly dubbed, you know, movies. And then the following weekend, they would do a martial arts theater. So they would show the same thing that showed two, three, um, uh, two or three badly dubbed martial arts movies. And some of them were um, um, just the way they were portrayed for what the humor was. You could see a lot of slapstick. You could see some, a lot of, um, you know, maybe I don't say it was necessarily influenced by say, the three stooges or a certain slapstick that you would see here in the States, but there was sort of a slapstick feel to some also very serious, um, martial arts choreography. Um, and so you, you found it interesting and intriguing because we'd never seen that thing in this, you know, I was basically, you know, I, I lived where they had more cows than people, but then along comes Bruce Lee and Bruce Lee then, you know, does, you know, fist the furies and enter the dragon. And, and, <laughs> and you just like, then you knew, holy shit that's that's a whole different game this guy is is cool and you've mm. got it and it was it was less silly and more serious and so even in the early days of the turtles when peter and i did even uh, um, more research into you know certain philosophies um and uh the approaches to um the the feudal japan the the the, the different um levels of you know shogun samurai you know, um, ninjas, um, that whole thing. We, we would sort of tread so that we did, we, because we didn't want to do something quote unquote offensive. Um, but at the same time, sort of keep to the more of the purity of the, 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 the martial art form as we used it in the comic books. And I always gravitated towards, um, Bruce Lee's philosophy. Um, when he did a, he did a book called, um, it was a Jeet Kune Do, which was sort of, uh, a Bible that most martial artists, um, especially MMA fighters use today. And that he was, you know, don't learn just karate. Um, mm. Don't learn just judo. Don't learn just Brazilian. Don't learn just Sabat or Kali or um, uh, Taekwondo or Kung Sado. He said, learn them all because you can become a better martial artist and a better warrior by knowing multiple forms of combat because you never know what, you know, if you only know karate and somebody comes in and is using judo, then your defense against the thing might not be what it could be. It should be, especially you could lose. Um, so I sort of studied, even when I studied martial arts for, for many years, I, I did, you know, everything from Muay Thai to Sabat to Aikido to Kali to stuff that, you know, under that philosophy. So that's what we tried to sort of pilot the, the turtles, um, uh, appreciation and respect, which was respect first and foremost, but also the multiple, uh, <clears throat> the styles and the, uh, um, honor the, the, the different forms of, of, of each martial art, um, equally. How much do you think Bruce Lee contributed to you being ready and trained for the industry? It was, it was definitely, um, it came to me in, in, a, in, 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 a couple ways over a period of time and and what i mean to clarify obviously to clarify is what i used to read about what um his philosophies were for martial arts and being a, a warrior and a fighter and the discipline of um what it does for you um and to your soul and your mental ability and stability 
by understanding all this and understanding the the the, the respect and the physicality and reaching sort of all those things within yourself that help you become a more balanced and um, and uh, um, confident person because you can you can feel that you can you can take care of yourself that you're not scared or you're not this but then reading about it is one thing and I had appreciation for all of that um, already but then when you start actually doing martial arts which came to me much later I didn't really start studying martial arts until 90 probably early 90s when I moved to LA full-time where it was more you know um, prevalent you could find it was dojos everywhere and you could find different um, uh, martial arts styles to study and, and learn from but until you actually start using actually studying it with a uh, um, a real sensei that is um, um, respectful of the tradition not like <laughs> not a Hollywood version of martial arts but actually mm. someone that um, has the full understanding and respect um, and the the, the um, to teach it and teach it appropriately um, then you learn then it's a whole different perspective because then you can apply everything that you've read about physically and mentally and it does it's it's quite quite life-changing and so i think it is the you know sort of level of um confidence overall that definitely helps you prepare for any kind of battle whether it be you know mentally or um, in a negotiation or boardroom or standing in front of an audience and speaking to people um to um just you know walking down the street you have a different kind of confidence if you feel you can protect yourself if you need to, or protect the people you love if you need to, but also be um, more more self assured in your um, in your movements and your discussions and things. So we're talking about a practice that, of course, did bring a balance and clarity to mind, which is something that comes across in the work and the engine of, of course, the turtles. Now, we're talking about when it comes to the story, we're talking about mutated children adopted by a single rat from Japan who isn't even the same species as they are. (laughs) In what ways do you think turtles extends the complex X-Men metaphor and plays into the multicultural society we live in with regards to identity and home. No, it's, um, it's exactly all of that kind of put into a blender and, and, and sort of mixed up in that, um, to, to, to that outcome. And that um, when um, Peter and I started breaking down the origin of the turtles and who they were and, um, what kind of story we wanted to tell um again keeping firmly in mind that we had already been rejected by uh, not with the turtles by other ideas we would submit other ideas or drawing samples and things like that of things we try we're trying to break into the comic market we've been rejected you know countless times um mm. so when the idea of the turtles were created we were like we like this one let's keep it for ourselves um you know um let's just write it for ourselves. Let's, let's create a story that um, we like and we believe in and, and um, works for us because nobody's going to read it anyway. Like I said, if we sell a couple hundred copies, that would be great. But if we don't, we've still written a story that we really were passionate about and we love. So our approach was then taking into account, um, say, instead of just one Ninja Turtle, we love the camaraderie and the differences of opinion a point of view say with the x-men or avengers or the fantastic four in that um you know 
each has got a different strength that they bring to the group. It's diverse. They have a different mindset that they bring to the group, which is diverse. And although they might, like you would imagine, um, say, a, a, an average family, if you will, might have differences of opinion and arguments and not always agree on everything. But when the chips were down, they all needed to come together. It took them wanting to be there and supporting each other and bring their their strength of what their abilities are each individually to the group. And as a group, you then would solve that scenario by being there and protecting and sacrifice or, you know, using your brains and, and as well as your physical skills. Um, so things like those uh, um, uh, concepts, including say the mutant aspect of the Ninja Turtles, um, the derivative of the X-Men was the new mutants at that time, which was hugely popular. And it was mutant kids kind of like, you know, like Peter Parker was a mutant kid, if you will. He was in high school, but you have these mutant teenagers. So we had our teenage mutant aspect. You had the animal aspect, which went from different animal comics going back to probably Jack Kirby's Commandy with the uh, animal characters and Dave Sims, Cerebus. Um, and then the ninja aspect was firmly rooted in um, what, um, uh, my original love, Peter and I's original love, and things like Bruce Lee, when Frank Miller brought the hand and Electra and this whole ninja aspect into the Daredevil storyline, that was really a hybrid of all things um, picked from different comic book universes and different comic book ideas, again, put into a blender and sort of out came the turtles. By We, we picked the things that we liked the most about those things and yeah. kind of quote unquote borrowed from them to <laughs> to make our our own characters um and so yeah it was that uh, that philosophy that i i just i love that um uh, that kind of a scenario and that kind of story storytelling is um, interesting to me now, speaking of storytelling, we mentioned it just earlier. We talked about, of course, the 30-year anniversary of the original 1990s Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film. What's your relationship with the original 1990s film after 30 years, of course, as of last month? Yeah, there was, uh, my relationship is um, uh, with that film is unending uh, appreciation respect and immense gratitude to uh, director Steve Barron um, first and foremost, because he really, he, he just had a vision and, and a focus. And I want to say um, he got it. He wasn't one of those guys that sort of came in and said, well, I'm a director and I'm a film director, um, <laughs> sort of, <laughs> which is different. From comic books so i'm going to take your little comic book idea and i'm going to make it into a good film steve is so much smarter than that because he was one of those guys that recognized the first thing a film director does when um he takes on a uh, a movie is he storyboards it what's a storyboard it's a comic book <laughs> he basically storyboards it out his hand drawn out all the visuals that help tell the full story that he wants to tell so he'd already seen a lot of the original black and white comic books that he really liked that he understood the concept of the humor with the cartoon show. He understood that, um, he'd worked with Jim Henson, uh, uh, on some of his storyteller episodes. And so he knew and understood, um, special effects to the extent of, uh, of, uh, 
building costumes and, and uh, animatronics and things, uh, actors working with puppetry as well as, you know, actors inside of suits. So he just had this great appreciation. So he had a, he said, why try to fix something that isn't broken? I, I love the, the story's there, the heart's there, the soul's there. We're just going to finesse it into something that's more, um, a complete story. Um, and so first, you know, utmost respect to Steve Barrett for having that vision Two, having him bring in, um, a fantastic writer like Todd Langdon, who wrote the screenplay, uh, that they filmed, um, more importantly, convincing, uh, Jim Henson to build the costumes because Jim had some reservations that it was, um, a, a lot more violent than the kind of content that he was normally doing, even, you know, with, you know, approach to things like Dark Crystal and things, but he was much more kids, lighthearted kids entertainment. So he did convince Jim, you know, that there's a heart and soul in the story. Um, and then Brian Henson was um, second unit director on the film, which was great. And I've been able to not only keep in touch with uh, Steve over the years, but um, uh, Brian as well. And, and uh, some of the actors um, that have been in the movies from Elias Gateas and Judith. So it's, it's, it's just, you know, just the perfect memory of the perfect film that I think was best represents um, all things turtles. And even to this day, there have been a number of movies made since um, some I like, some I like more, some I like less, but that first movie was, um, that was it. That was the one that was uh, perfect. That was the perfect storm. It really was, man. It's also the only Ninja Turtles film where the shredder displays any martial arts capabilities. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> you're well special. Yeah, well, you know, that was the thing, like, even when we were heading into the first stage of production on movie two, um, they, the film company felt like they had to fix something that wasn't broken. And they felt that we, well, they said, well, the first one had a darkness to it and it had an edge to it, um, but we need to make it more like the cartoon. And, you know, Peter and I's argument from day one was always why i mean you know the cartoon is the cartoon the first movie captured both it had the humor and it had the antics and had the fun bits that you might find and that the audiences that one like the cartoon will find which i said you got to have a solid you know story and story structure that you know older audiences are going to want to see it's like um but i felt that um there was a um there was a lot of arguing around the second movie, and I felt that they definitely took it in the wrong direction, only that they made it more of a cartoon, um, although a lot of people loved Secret of the Used as well. But yeah. I, Peter and I felt that it was it was a bit more... Um, you didn't, they didn't need to go as lighthearted as they did. And they missed using what the Turtles are known for, which is martial arts. Um, yeah. That's important, though. Yeah. Uh, with the first, it took place in a grimier pre-Giuliani era mm -hmm. New York City, a time when gentrification wasn't so rife. In New York was a much different place. Is there a likelihood that the new Turtles film could transport us back to a time and reflect that old New York and capitalise on the nostalgia of that era, much like you know a lot of the films are doing or have been doing in recent years? Well, I would love that. I would like that... Um you know, it's one of the things that um, I know I'm pointing to a cartoon, but the what was interesting about the 2012 Nickelodeon series that ran from 2012 to 2017 was Ciro Neely loved that first movie and that, plus he grew up in Philadelphia too um, and been to New York. He loved that, that, that edgy 
edgy, dirty, sort of rebel alliance sort of feel. Everything was shoestring and bubblegum sort of stuff. <laughs> he said that gave it a real uh, heart and soul. Um, and uh, um, so that's why I think that, you know, um, uh, that worked visually really well. But he also brought in, if you actually went back and watched some of the cartoons and some of the martial arts um, sequences, they brought in um, different martial arts instructors that helped them choreograph some of those fight scenes. So some of the fight scenes you see that they're they're doing and what he's doing in that film, um, in, in that those cartoons, are pretty edgy. <laughs> they're pretty authentic. Um, they're thought out. They're not just sort of hack slash hack slash cut away to something else. They're very thoughtfully choreographed, um, which I love. But uh, one of the things that I've asked for. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not asked for, but I've mentioned sort of constantly in discussions, you know, um, with any executive that has any control over all things turtles is like, um, the Netflix Daredevil series is so mm. fantastic. It's so edgy. It goes back to that time period, which I felt was like, whether you can see the turtles running around in the background, almost, um, and that edginess and the grittiness and the and the and the tone that they gave uh, that Netflix Daredevil series, and I always felt if you wanted to do something for, you know, the older audience, which is most of the turtles these days, you know, most original turtle fans are all you know, like thirty years old and up, mm-hmm. um, did love to see that kind of uh, edgy, moody, um, darker storytelling. I'm not saying you have to lop off people's heads or do, you know, go, you know, let blood spring across the screen every two minutes, but you could do something that is edgy or more intense, which is martial arts centric as a story. Um, and I think it would, it would be a huge hit. I think that you would find all those original fans coming out in droves to see that kind of a version of the turtle, uh, the turtles that they grew up on um, done the way that they, uh, their mindset is now is what they appreciate. And, you know, as fans of, you know, everything that's being reinvented from, you know, Dark Knight to, you know, the, the new Superman, all the new superhero movies have an intensity and edge. I mean, look at the Marvel movies. I mean, those things are, those are pretty, pretty brutal. If you think about the scope and scale and, you know, there's people dying and there's, there's meaningful themes that sort of um, put it in the mindset that we like in our entertainment as adults. Um, so, yeah, man, I'd love to see, dark, moody, martial arts-centric turtles all day long. Is there much talk about the development of the latest film? Are you able to reveal anything about the latest film that you've had from conversations with the studio? Uh, no. Uh, they Basically, as I sold my rights um, to the turtles 20 years ago, um, when they bring me in like um, to work on different aspects, for example... I've been working on, I just finished 100 issues of the, um, the IDW turtles comic book, Tom Waltz and I did, uh, started in 2011 and we finished, uh, December of, uh, last year, just 2019, we did a hundred issues of, uh, a more edgy version of the comic book. So that's the stuff I work on. I did voices and I did some consulting on the animated series. Um, I've done some consulting on the movie. So they bring me in when they want to get my two cents, um, whether they use it or not. Um, uh, it's another thing, but I, you know, I'm more hands-on. I'm like, literally, I was drawing a cover for the latest issue of uh, the Turtles comic, and I'm, you know, I'm uh, writing and drawing a, a new five-part series that's coming out this year. 
Um, so still actively involved in the comic books, but the entertainment stuff, it's, it's based on their discretion. Um, and I feel like um, they haven't mentioned anything to me about what they're doing with the new movie yet, but I hope they're, um, I hope they're listening <laughs> because I've mentioned yeah. it um, more than a few times. And, uh, you know, my wife Courtney and I up until this year, and it probably unfortunately is going to be some time before we get to do it again is that we would do, um, you know, 15 to 20 comic conventions a year all over the world. Um, I mean, we were in uh, our last show, uh, unfortunately for the foreseeable future, because of the conditions uh, uh, that our world is facing as we face together is um, we did uh, two shows in Australia um, the first two weeks in March, right when things were sort of starting to get really scary um, when everybody started realizing that this is not like tiny little pockets of this and that. And we watched the world explode as we're sitting in uh, a hotel room in Australia, in Melbourne with our friends and going like, Oh, I don't know if we're going to be able to get a flight home. Um, um, and, uh, I mean, we were actually, it was, what was even scarier is that we did one weekend in Melbourne. The second weekend was up the gold coast. Um, uh, the, the convention was called supernova. Uh, great, great bunch of guys and fans were awesome. Um, but while we were in gold coast, it was the same weekend that Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson had been, had tested positive for the um, coronavirus, uh, COVID-19, and they were um, actually staying in the hotel next to us. And so we started getting really freaked out. <laughs> oh, really? Um, they were next door uh, to you? Like literally, next, they were in the, they had, once they tested positive, they moved them to uh, the hospital down the, down the road at, in Gold Coast. But uh, that's when, again, things started becoming... Um, Real. really real like we were finally getting all the information that we hadn't been gotten before and, and realized that the seriousness of um what was going on and so uh um but the um yeah the conventions are something that i will um dearly miss because it's an opportunity to meet the fans talk to them and and that's what i told the studios you know bringing it back to your question and point was i say look you know we do 15 to 20 shows a day we're talking to the fans and they're telling us exactly what they want. And I'm telling you, <laughs> this is, you couldn't have more, more specific market research. I said, this is what they would like to see, whether you believe me or not, that's your fault. But I'm telling you, this is what, you know, I'm told. And, and, you know, if you want to go right to the source, I can tell you what that is. And so, um, uh, we'll, we'll see what they, what they have in mind. I'd love it if they would include me in it, but if, uh, they don't have to, so I'll, if they don't, then I'll be one of the people to go see it opening weekend and give everybody my honest critique. We would love it. We would love it. I think it's a necessity at this point in time, given, of course, your relationship with the franchise and you being a creator, of course. What about the people, the fans, the kids, the adults growing up and who have grown up with Turtles? Do you have any advice going through this situation right now as we navigate through this darkness? Oh, it's... um. Um, it's tough, you know, it's, it, I don't want to sound like, well, I'm just going to repeat what, what everybody else is saying, what we're saying to all of our friends and that it's, a, um, you know, it's, it is, it, it is probably the scariest thing in, in my lifetime. Um, mm. you know, I'm 50, 58 years old. I'll be, you know, 59 this year. And, you know, in, in my lifetime, you know, it's, it's not the, you know, uh, the world wars or the wars or the different things that, you know, um, others have experienced before us and, and what might come after, but it is sort of like, this is, um, it's, it's a global 
scenario that is and will continue to touch every man, woman, and child around the world, and, and it'll have a, an effect that will change um, how we deal with everything from mm -hmm. the point of um, um, traveling, whether it be getting on a train, plane, bus, or thing. There's going to be a whole different process of how that's going to go forward and, and the comfort level of what you need to have of people willing to take that journey. I mean, I used to go, I mentioned going to comic conventions and I would shake hands and, and, and oftentimes hug or take pictures with every fan that comes through the line. Uh, you know, you just can't do that anymore for their safety and my safety and our safety, mm. just cause, um, you don't know. Um, so it is sort of, you know, you have to be more aware. You have to, uh, you're not worrying about yourself, um, and that you, might feel you're invincible and I'll never get sick or I'll never get that, but it's not, that's not the, the, you should be worried about everybody else. You should be worried about your family, your loved ones, your friends, your everything. It's not a, a singular thing um, that you can deny or see. So I think that um, whether it be embracing, you know, and protecting your family um, and then getting through it, um, which is first and foremost, but getting through it is, is, it is a time of, you know, um, we're doing homeschooling. Um, my wife and I work at home, so I'm, we're still able to uh, keep in touch with friends, family through Skype, through zoom, through, um, you know, call, phone calls, uh, texts, um, and then just sort of, it is, it's, it's, um, keep the faith. We will get through it. Um, and it's not, mm -hmm easy right now um, we've got a lot of friends out of work um you know we we're all right now out of basically out of work for the most part we don't have um uh, a regular um, opportunities to to work right now um, and a lot of people are, are far far um worse off than us and so you know we got to do what we can hearts and and prayers out to all of them and we want to do what we can to help them get through it as we you know, again, all go through this together because that's um, um, that's the uh, that's the main concern here is um, fear for all of us, protect all of us, safety for all of us, and um, mm. lo lots of prayers. Absolutely. And on that note, we want to wish you the best in health and luck going forward. We thank you for taking time out of your schedule, Kevin Eastman, to do this interview. It's been, I've just drawn a big tick on my bucket list. Um, it's been incredible. Well, I thank you very much. Your questions were wonderful, thoughtful, and, uh, and I, I'm long-winded in my answers, but I hope uh, I enjoyed myself very, very much. And I and I hope anybody listening um, enjoys uh, our discussion today because I had a great time. And uh, same to you, uh, uh, safety to you and your family and your friends and your loved ones. And anybody listening, um, you know, take care of um, those ones you love and big hugs from us. How will people be able to join you on Facebook to celebrate the very first issues release? Of course, we've got a special event coming up on the 16th. Before we wrap up, let's talk about the 16th and how people can engage and celebrate with you together. Oh yes, please. Thanks for bringing it up. I always <laughs> I forget that um, we have a, a, a basically a, a website, Kevin Eastman Studios um, dot com. You know, Kevin Eastman Studios dot com. It's um, pretty much all things of what I'm doing, where I'm going, where we're talking, events that we're being part of, new uh, products or ideas, or latest news on certain issues that we're doing. But we did a um, an official 
you know, on March 30th, we did an official um, um, screening of the Turtles movie. We basically, it's like <laughs> we did a Facebook live event where it was called uh, Watch TMNT with me. Um, and, uh, um, and so fans were able to tune in and uh, would give basic commentary on the, on the, on the film as it was sort of playing in the background on our TV. Fans could ask questions and that stuff. And we had such a great time doing that. Um, that we earmarked uh, April 16th, which was the day that Peter and I actually got the first issue um, 36 years ago from the printer. So April 16th, the books were actually in our hands for the first time, um, you know, all those years ago as we were getting ready for uh, its premiere at a, a comic convention in Dover, New Hampshire on the uh, uh, the 5th of May. So, so we thought we'd do another Facebook Live and I'll tell anecdotes and stories and show a bunch of pictures and things and talk about, you know, the coolest and, and, and what sort of led up to that issue 36 years ago and, 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 and that kind of thing. And we're going to try to do it as a regular thing um, uh, as a, you know, it's all free. It's all out there for anybody that can tune in that wants to tune in. And, and we just want to try to keep you entertained and, and give a little bit back and say thanks to um, uh, all those people that have supported us all these years and, and just let's do some fun while we're all stuck inside. Um, and so we're going to start doing uh, a bit more of those um, more regularly and hope that, um, you know, I enjoy them and I hope the fans enjoy them um, as well. So, um, so yeah, KevinEastmanStudios.com is where you can find out all those details. And then, uh, yeah, tune in and we hope to see you there.